Sport Calgary is a volunteer-based nonprofit society guided by a deep love of sport and a mission to help sport grow in our city. Hiya! Uh, how you holding up, everybody? Uh, it's your old podcasting pal, Rob Kerr. Thanks for uh, logging on. Thanks for subscribing at, uh, uh, at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or going to sportcalgary.ca every day and checking us out. Uh, love the feedback. Uh, love that you're part of this. Uh, by the way, starting next week, we're because things are starting to open up a little bit, and because, quite honestly, we, we've got some people who are still trying to catch up, we're going to slow the dropping down, not to suggest we're moving away or anything, but we're going to just drop podcasts on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday starting next week. So three weeks starting next week. But don't worry, the same great guests, the same great Calgary content, uh, much like today's podcast, which is a favorite of mine, um, in full disclosure, uh, the person is a friend, um, and I've, I've had the opportunity to work with her on a number of uh, charitable events. We're both ambassadors for kids sport. Um, she is a, a, an ambassador for Fast and Female. Um, she is a great follow in social media. She has a voice. She isn't afraid to use it, and I love it. I, I, and I love, uh, I just love this conversation today with a uh, Canadian skeleton member, um, team member, uh, Grace Defoe. Grace is going to join us. Uh, she's going to talk about going from being a figure skater to being a, uh, a uh, you know, on uh, pushing for a spot at an upcoming Winter, Winter Olympics in Skeleton. And she almost, this was a big year for her. She almost walked away. And she's going to talk very openly about that. So I'm really excited about that. So Grace Defoe coming up in just a minute. Sport Calgary acts as a resource for sports organizations with a ton of information available on www.sportcalgary.ca. Learn about community and coaching resources, research, jobs, and, of course, the latest in Calgary sport. Uh, As advertised, as mentioned, Grace Defoe. And Grace is awesome. Just awesome. So let's spend a little time with her, shall we? What's reality right now for Grace? Uh, my reality right now is working from home. Um, I work at Classroom Champions, so I'm very lucky to still be working, um, as well as just still training. And I have access to a park across the street, which I've been running in, um, and then a home gym actually over at my dad's house, who's kind of been part of our quarantine circle. Um, so I'm very, very lucky that I can still like work and train it is very different I'm a very busy person and I just came off traveling for 80 days over the season with the skeleton team Mm -hmm. and then to come smack dab back into like not being able to do anything and generally this is the time when I would see all my friends and family and like reconnect after a long season so I mean definitely difficult on that end but lots of great stuff and rest on the other side well, it sounds like you're making the best of it. And and if you've been listening to the podcast, you know early on we were asking a lot of, geez, where were you when you found out? Well, I think that question morphs now to, did you think we'd get this far in? Is this, you know, when this all started in March, is did you expect to be here in May still in this situation? Yes and no. I, I did recognize just because of the amount of we had been traveling early on in January, like, hearing from other nation, other athletes and then other world news when you're abroad, um, you start to go like, wow, this, this is actually a big thing. And you're surprised that at home, no one's talking about it. Hmm. Uh, but on the other end, when you emailed me a couple weeks ago, I was like, May, that's forever away. And then I was like, oh, that's only in 14 days. <laughs> 
I, so yeah, like time is time is passing. Um, but it's kind of just like I break it up into doesn't matter what like the calendar date is. I'm just like it's Monday, it's Tuesday, it's Wednesday. Just keeping that normalcy, and um, then I don't think about how long we've been like cooped up. That's an interesting point you raise because it, it does underscore kind of how I feel about this that the here and now isn't as important as the potential, right? And I, I would imagine you're thinking a lot about the fall as I am and, and what that might look like. And yet it's early part of May. We haven't technically even got into summer yet, but it always seems like our, our eye is on the horizon. Well, and I think especially like our testing calendar with Bobsleigh like Canada Skeleton, our international federation calendar, you know, we're trying to think ahead and plan our off season training towards those dates, but it is hard when, when like, we don't know, are we going to have, is it going to look the same as years past? Is it not? Um, it's, it's tough. Cause yeah, it's, we're looking ahead, but then you're also looking at, am I going to be able to hug my family next week? Yeah. So I like, and I would rather have more known about that than known about our season because like, I love to go see I, family's huge for me. So, I mean, like I have a little nephew and it's killing me that I can't be there. Like, after missing so much of like the first few months of his life, I can't be there like every day being like, I just want to hang out with you and babysit and stuff like that. And, and so, I mean, uh, that uncertainty is actually bothering me more than the season. I I know that like sports are, sport is obviously big in my life, but family is first. And so in that respect, it's, it's, it will come and they're doing the right steps and thinking about how to relaunch, et cetera. And I have a feeling the smartest people in the world will figure it out. I hope so. <laughs> That's, I'm I'm right there with you because there's certain. Like, I've said this and again. I apologize because now you got me uh, intrigued because you have listened to some. So you've heard me say this before. This has really done an amazing job of separating managers from leaders. It really has, hasn't it? Absolutely. We were actually just talking about that um, with some of my colleagues. Yet I was talking about yesterday with some of my colleagues, and it really separates the people who micromanage versus the people, the leaders who really trust that you will get whatever done. And we've been very lucky. I know you've had Steve Messler yeah. on, on your podcast. Yeah. And, uh, and I've been very lucky that I've, he's hired me and brought me into the classroom champions team doing some contracting work for them. And he's been awesome through this whole process of take whatever flexibility you need. And I trust that the work will get done um, and flexible deadlines. It's just been so he's, and I think that's a great example of seeing him. I'm like, you are a great leader in action. Um, pointing us in the right direction so that not only as a company, but as like individuals were successful. No, I'm glad you brought him up because I think he's the perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like, okay, it's, it's not going the way we want. What can we do to help? How can we help? You know, the whole fact that they didn't get to go to South by Southwest and launch the platform like they wanted to, that would have crushed a lot of people, but okay, we can't do that. How do we adapt that? I think he's an amazing example of that. Yeah, for sure. And I was actually planning a lot of the South by Southwest logistics for that. So uh, right as we had finalized... So you are stuff, crushed. <laughs> uh, yes and no. It was it was stressful, but I mean, um, it was then stressful to undo all the, you know, the steps, the flights and the hotels and yeah. et cetera. But we did it fairly early, but then things just escalated like like early in the sense of like three days before it was can- actually canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and that's been, you've seen it all over the city and all over the country though, is how quickly, what, which companies can pivot and how, and then the other side is like the woe is me people. There's like kind of two buckets. Yep. No, it, so. it, it really is. 
So as a social person, how have you adapted? Because we, you know, you talk, we'll talk about your sport in a minute and we talk about your work, but as someone who likes to be around people, what have you done or how have you, how have you adapted to this? So I'll actually let you in on a little secret is I'm like an extroverted introvert. I'm actually not. So when, like when I'm me at events, me out at kids sport, yep. except kids sport events, um, fest and female events, like that's like the extroverted side of me, but I actually really love being home. Um, this is a little extreme, I will say now, but <laughs> definitely like we've done the first few weeks or the first couple weeks were the most difficult. We did like family FaceTime, which isn't the same as no. my whole family getting around um, a table and having dinner. Then we did some like Friday, Friday night happy hour with some friends on Zoom. And, and I mean, it's just not the same, but I'm still happy to just like hear people's voice. And I think because I spend so much time traveling, I'm used to connecting with people digitally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm used to FaceTiming home on the regular. Um, so it's not unusual, but I guess it's unusual when you're used to seeing those people in person, like at this time of year. <laughs> yeah. Well that, and that's, I, you know, again, I go back to the original part of this conversation and you, you said it well, you had just come off of 80 days on the road. This is when you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to come back and see family. Um, supposed to go back and see friends. Like it, it's upset everybody's apple cart, but you know, again, somebody who's traveling, that, that was the one thing I wondered. It, you know, this kind of communication, this kind of talking back and forth is probably that not that uncommon for you. Not in this format, or pardon me, not in this uh, way, but y you would have had to have done this to, to connect with people when you're in Europe, right? Yeah, and like for sure, I call my boyfriend and my dog a lot when I'm away <laughs> traveling with sliding. And, and so I'm used to that. So it's nice to actually be home with them um, and actually spend time with with him and with my dog, but yeah, it, it's easy, but it's just not, and it's just not the same. And I think that's like, it's not meant to replace. No. It's meant to like bite us, like get us through, but it's not meant to, to like replace it. So I think that's where people are really struggling. And I know I'm struggling. So let's talk a little bit about the sports side of things. Um, from a skeleton standpoint, obviously your season's over, but where are you in terms of off-season training? Where would you normally find yourself right now? Yeah, so we actually, the day kind of everything got shut down was the day a lot of us were headed out to Whistler to compete in Canadian championships. Um, I was had a flight booked seven days later than, than that and pulled the plug before the complete shutdown. And then I was like, okay, I just spent a couple weeks um, done a training camp in Whistler, came back for a couple weeks, and I was kind of like gearing up for the last final push, which was a week of Canadian championships. And that was a long season. Like the Canadian Thanksgiving, the start of October, basically, until then was like 100% mental focus, phys like physical focus. It was a long season and really grinding it out. So it almost was a breath of fresh air when I got to go, okay, now I can actually take, and I got an extra week of, off-season recovery essentially before we started my first in-season block and uh now I just finished up wrapped up my fourth week of like off-season training and mm -hmm. kind of not super intense but getting some fitness back like I said running doing a little bit of sprinting um and just getting back in the gym too and and addressing kind of like those fundamental motor, motor patterns and the base level before we can kind of move up and get more intense and move up the pyramid more specific, obviously, as we get closer to my season. So 
it's been really great. My coach has done, we've done zoom video calls, like where I just like this, put my laptop and I do the movement and she coaches me and it's not ideal, but it's better than nothing. And it, she's a great strength and conditioning coach. Uh, she's Carla Robbins of vital strength and physiology. Um, so I'm really lucky that they pivoted as well to like support me as an athlete to make sure that I didn't feel like I was losing like the training and physical activity piece as well during this whole crazy time. What about your upcoming season, your upcoming schedule? You're like, we're all in the same place. Again, I use that word about eye on the horizon. What have you been told? What can you be told about what the fall and the winter might look like? Uh, So we got our camps. It would have been the first week of April. We got like a draft schedule of what our off season camps look like. And that's like where we run, jump, throw, push in the ice house, um, off season testing. And, you know, and, the, and then things kind of escalated and they have three set camps and they're each in July, August, and September. So, I mean, if they had to cancel one or two of them, um, you know, there's another opportunity, but we haven't really heard about alternative plans. If all three have to be cut short, we're also not sure, like, can we travel to Whistler and train in October mm-hmm. or are we like stuck at our homes? You know, you don't know. We have people from all across the country in our national program. Um, are we going to be able to travel out there? Like we, there's just a lot of unknowns. They, they have released a draft calendar from the international federation side, but um, lots of TBC races to be confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You you know your sport better than I would, so tell me, I mean, where would you think you you could come back into the phasing in components? As you've seen, we're starting to phase back in, and um, is your tra- I mean, I don't imagine you're around hundreds of people when you train. So that's when we start to talk about you know will the flames return, will the CFL return, and stuff like that. Yeah, and I was like, if anything, these niche amateur sports should be one of the first to come back because we don't have more than 20 people in our national program. Like, yeah. And obviously that fluctuates, but you know what I mean? It's like, and really major world championships, maybe in Europe, there's lots of people that come out, but in North America, spectators generally pretty low Canadian selection races. There's probably never a person that someone isn't related to in the, (laughs) (laughs) so like, it's basically just everyone's parents and supporters lined up if they can, especially now that most of it's all in Whistler, um, not a lot of our families can make it out there even. So lots of times there's no one watching. It's just the officials and volunteers and us. So actually the hardest part is the people that actually work at the facility and the volunteers, like, are they going to be able to get there? But my hope is that we can actually get some domestic training happening um, as we start to relaunch and, and as things evolve, because that would be really great in October if we can at least get on the ice and train and kind of stay in the in the bubble in Whistler, but obviously that's only if we can be safe and then we're not impacting the community of Whistler that we're going to. All right, so two questions that I want to be really careful how I ask. Um, one, be, you're a national team athlete, and because your sport is Olympic, my assumption is you would be in, in line for random testing at any time during the year, correct? Drug testing? So... I'm not in the, so there's a registered testing pool that like you have to submit your whereabouts quarterly and they can knock on your door. Like if you say my time is six to 7am, they can show up any day of the week from six to 7am. But I am in the pool of 
if I'm involved in a training camp, you know, on ice, they can come and find us and they know like the whole Canadian team's training in Whistler right now. It's not uncommon for them to show up at our testing camps or at our push camps. Um, and, you know, just say, you, 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 come on, we're going okay. testing. Okay. Um, so it's not like, but yes, I, I am subject at all times to the, you know, world anti-doping and the CCES, the Canadian testers to their standards, like every day. That's how we live. We want to make sure that we can pass a test any day of the week, any hour of the day. So as you and I are talking, there's a door over your right shoulder. Nobody's going to knock on that door right during the middle of this podcast to come test you, are they? That's actually a closet. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, if they came out of there, that's a whole other story. Matt, if someone came out of there, it would scare me a lot. <laughs> Um, so the second question I want to ask you is, where are you in terms of Olympic qualification, th- that process? Because you would be, um, you are smack dab in the middle of the quadrennial, are you not? Yeah, so next year is the pre-Olympic season, and then obviously in October, then we would kind of have the start of our Olympic selection criteria for not only like within Canada, but then within the whole International Federation. Um, this is a tricky question, just because it's like, well, you do the sport, and there are not very many women right now in our program. Um, so you're like, I mean, yes, there's a, I always like to say there's a chance because I'm in, I'm in the hat. My name is in the hat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you also look at our team and we have a really strong women's program that have all been to the previous games okay. and they're all still sliding. So then the realist in me is like, well, you know, it's, they're going to be the ones potentially. Right. Um, but I also never like to count myself out and, you know, if you would ask me this question two years ago, um, I was actually cut after the last Olympics. So it's kind of in the same place I am now leading into the Pyeongchang games. Like I was like in the national development team yep. and I'm like, okay, like I know I'm not going to 2018, but I'm going to compete the season. I want to race that season on the North America's cup. And then the next year I was completely cut provincial athlete. You get, I got like a couple races, but normally we race about eight or nine races. Yep. And, uh, like that was devastating. And so I kind of, at that point was like, actually, like, I might just walk away from this. Like what it made me question a lot of, a lot of stuff in terms of life and sport and, you know, what, what are the benefits of moving forward and will I regret this going forward? And so I decided to like, I'll just train one more summer. And that this was last off season. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going all in, um, worked with an amazing with the same team but I would say that like my renewed like my renewed confidence and wanting it a little bit more pushed me to push it a little bit more um in training and I ended up making the national team this year so that was a little bit of a surprise and I was ranked fifth in Canada in our selection races and it actually took me until a couple weeks ago to go oh my gosh you're ranked fifth in Canada yeah, yeah. I never actually took a second to like yeah be like that's actually really cool. Um, so I, yeah, we'll see how the next couple of years play out. My goal is actually always been to think about 2026. Um, and that's why I was so into the Calgary 2026. <laughs> yes. For very selfish reasons, but also I'm a lifelong Calgarian. Sure. I saw all the benefits of growing up of being like of the legacy of the 88 games. So if I understand it correctly, you are on the national team, but then there is the Olympic team. And how does it work in skeleton? Is it spots or is it qualification time? 
to make the Olympics? So it's, so with international team, we have a development team and then the senior national team. So right now I'm on the development team, Okay. but I raced some of the senior team races. So I'm kind of in the middle and I'm gearing. My goal is to obviously make the senior team the next, this next year. Um, just that puts you more in line for funding and, and different race opportunities within that. That's kind of like what I would say the smaller pool of likely people that are going to be in contention for then the games. Cause there's say five or six people on that team. Um, Canada has to race against other nations to qualify spots. So we need X number of people say in the top 60 mm-hmm. to qualify three spots or X or three people at, and don't quote me because I have they yeah. don't have it out yet. But yeah. you know what I mean. You yeah, I do. Yeah. Number of people out of this many, and it's kind of a race. It's like we're racing some of the other big nations like Germany, Great Britain, Russia, um, to get that like third and final spot because a certain number of nations only get three spots, and then there'll be like four nations get two spots, and then the rest are single nation allocations. Right. So it's kind of a race that way internationally, and then like nationally, obviously you want to push faster you want to be ranked the top canadian in our like in our international rankings so there there are lots of balls in the air but really you just want to push as fast as you can drive as well as you can and have the best equipment you can and then just see where that puts you so let me see if i got this right for all intents and purposes grace you had a come to jesus moment last spring or summer am i going to do this i'm not going to do this i'm going to do this and i'm going hard this year what changed what did you do what were you better at this year what got you to fifth in the country uh so i mean it definitely it was the thought of like if i'm if i am going to keep doing this first of all i'm not funded at all i self-fund everything Mm -hmm. including my training um off the ice so i kind of thought like i don't want to waste any more time or money (laughs) if this isn't something that I, that I'm actually going to be serious about, um, and not just like skirting by day by day. So that was kind of like the main driving factor, but it was also, and, and this year, the the last year has been really tough is that my, when we started the off season last year, my grandma had actually just been diagnosed with cancer and super close to her. Like she raised, she raised me, she's my mom's mom. Um, she raised me in the sense of when my mom went back to work, like she was my daycare. She drove me to all the sports. She drove me up to figure skating competitions in Edmonton, you know, all around Southern Alberta. And so that was definitely hard in the sense of like very personally, but it's almost like I channeled how hard that was into my training. So uh, it was training was almost a distraction and like a normalcy and something I could control. So that was kind of, also, the, what kept me focused through the whole offseason was that it was just like somewhere else I could be that I could focus and not think about everything else that was going on. So, all things considered, understanding the circumstances we're under, what would you look for, what step would you look for for next year? Where would you get better? Where, were you, where will your improvement come in the next season? Definitely physically. Um looking at that is that I had spent a couple of years obviously being cut and injured. And, mm-hmm. and so training is obviously you just get like, if you're properly trained, all the fundamentals we built last year are already still built. So then we can kind of build better patterns on top of those and more complex ones. So I can push faster, 
which obviously is how we start our sled. And if you push faster, that puts you at an advantage then to drive well down the track. And because I haven't been always the fastest pusher, I actually have some driving skills that that can gain me some speed, but I never had the start speed. So if I can combine those, then that's going to really obviously help just getting faster down the track because you're trying to get as fast as you can, faster than the other person. Um, the other sense is like mentally, uh, it's a very, very mentally demanding sport. You know, you're going 130 kilometers an hour and making split second decisions that mean you're either coming out on your back or hitting a wall or coming out clean and gaining speed. So that's always a factor is thinking about how to prepare mentally, um, to go into a season and, you know, you go to, you go to different tracks and you might not have been there before. You have to learn a whole set of track notes without ever actually feeling what it feels like to go down that track. So definitely physically and mentally, those are the major things that I'm looking forward to improving over the next few months. You just mentioned, you know, having to learn a track without ever physically being on it. How much does technology play a role in your training? Do you, do you do virtual reality racing? Do you do, you know, anything like that? Is it, is technology part of your, your training? Uh, GoPro has been a huge, huge help because people have then started to take GoPros down the track for the World Cup um, race videos. So then you pull those up and you can see, like, then you can put it in front of you and almost lay on your sled. And it's not the same, but you can lay on your sled and rehearse the steers and you can kind of see where the pressure picks up the sled. And especially if you watch it more and more, you pick up on these little nuances. Um, that for sure has been something even since I started in 2012, say that has come a long way, the quality of GoPro videos. Oh, are yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. You can like rotate it and look backwards. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, and then on the other end, like all our races are streamed on YouTube. So being able to pull those up as well is really awesome and rewatch people. Cause it's obviously better to be in person and experience it, but then you have to gain the secondhand knowledge of watching because like you have to pick up on every little nuance you can get when you're preparing to go a hundred second faster. <laughs> yeah. W what's the preparation piece that you think you rely on or you use the most? What's the one that that's your go-to? My go-to? Well, I have a journal that I use like, and it's purely sliding notes. Um, I don't do a lot of like my off-ice stuff in the same journal, but uh, in a lot as I write what I can control and what I can't control. Yeah. So what I can control, how I drive down the track, what I can't control, what so-and-so is thinking about me. And especially I, I'm very self-aware. And so sometimes I can like be like, oh, that person's looking at me. Are they judging me? Did they see me go through the corner and I didn't have a great, you know, great corner six. And I kind of have to remove that sense. Um, and then the other thing in there is I write obviously all the video feedback and then I digitize them at the end of the race week. Um, that like when I left in 2016 in Whistler, these were my Whistler notes. Um, so that's like organizational wise, that's a huge one. And mm -hmm. then what I've worked a lot on this year is, uh, like breathing. So, um, I get really, I, I'm very uptight. <laughs> I won't lie. I, I pace the start house and you know, my teammates are like, yeah. it's okay. Like you've done this before <laughs> you're going to be okay. But it's kind of, it's, it's just my thing. And pacing is actually how your brain like processes nervousness. Um, so it, it is okay, but then I learned to take a deep breath. So I get out on the block and I breathe three seconds in, hold for three seconds, three seconds out. And it kind of gets you in that flow state or if, especially if you're not 
if you're like not pumped up or you're too nervous, it gets you back into that sweet spot. And whenever I'm on the block, I kind of have to go there because you can also see while I'm standing on the block, like the last person's times and some tracks you can see the video. And I, I don't want to know what so-and-so is doing at that moment. It's about me. It's about me preparing for my run. I can look at their time sheets later. Um, <laughs> so like working on breathing has been really, really great. And I think it's been a huge part of my success as well in the last year, just knowing when I'm too nervous and how to, how to control it. I'm going to take a while. I'm not even going to ask you the question. I'm going to jump to the answer. I don't think I can talk to you on race day. Oh, really? Don't you think? <laughs> I mean, no, you like, I'm just listening to I'm just listening to what you said. And I think, cause that's my go-to question with, with athletes, especially racers. Can I talk? What's your? Can I talk to you on game day? Because some want to be in that zone, right? I just I'm focused. Talk to me when the race is over. And then there's some that are just so yeah, sure. You talk to me till I push off. Doesn't matter to me. I I'm just wondering, like, can I talk to you on race day? So the closer it gets, definitely. Um, I'm not like going to have a full conversation with someone. Yeah. Um, maybe if it's one of my teammates too. Like if if I'm racing, say, and my Canadian teammate's going off right behind me, I like look at I look at her. I'm like, let's go, like fist bump. Yeah. Um, but we're not like you're right. I'm not relaxed being like joking it off. I'm, I'm pacing and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, breathing and getting ready. But on the other end is like, I don't listen to music during my warm up on race day. You don't. So, and this is something new this year as well. In the last couple of years, I've trained with less romantic. Oh. And <laughs> I got to get him on the podcast because he keeps showing up everywhere. So, I mean, yeah. And you should, that would be an awesome, awesome podcast. But, uh, I actually remember doing one of my prep workouts before testing and, and this was still at the point, it was about a year ago. Like I still kind of used headphones on race day. Um, but I didn't train like that. So then he looked at me and he's like, you haven't trained all summer with headphones. Why are you putting them on now? Kind of thing. And, yeah. and so it's funny. So then I, I didn't wear them and then I didn't wear them for testing and I ran the national team standard the next day. And I was like, okay, you might be onto something. And so, and I also like to hear the, so at the track, I like to hear all the track announcements, like, uh, 45 minutes till women's, uh, till the women's race starts, you know, 50 minutes till the men, et cetera. Um, so I don't like to wear headphones and so yes and no, I, I'll have a quick conversation with someone, but I'm not going to go out of my way. You're right to, yeah. to have a full conversation unless there's something I need to know, then I will go around the room and, uh, I'm always listening and, that's part of not wearing headphones is I like to hear the background noise of what's going on, everything. Yeah. Because then if I hear something that pertains to me or, you know, they're saying that the groove is pulling the sleds to the left, I can hear that. And then I know when I go um, what to do. So something you said about hearing the announcements, is that necessary or is that habitual? If, 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 if one isn't done, do you notice it right away? Like, where is it? Like, do you know it's coming up? Like it should be in the next 30 seconds. I'm going to hear that. Not that that's what you would articulate, but in your head, are you thinking that? It's habitual because, like, when we travel to Germany and Austria, like, I don't understand 90% of what they say. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at that point, but it's nice to just hear. It's like a, it's because it's like a voice from the sky. It's like, and you tend to know what tracks have what specific voices, like certain tracks have mm -hmm. really, like, famous announcers, especially on race day. Yeah. Like, there's one guy in Königsee in Germany that, like, when I was coming, they were running a lower level uh, Europa Cup race and we were racing in the afternoon and I could hear the guy announcing from when I was loading the sled in our car and we were like up the valley from where the track is. 
and you hear him like like screaming like like Ronaldo just scored a goal. Oh, that's awesome. See, that's that's the one thing I wonder about talking to Jesse and the bobsleigh and and you know other sliding athletes is how much we don't have that tradition or I don't know if that's the right word, but like there's there that isn't happening in in Whistler, is it? I mean, not to not to take anything away from the track announcer Whistler. I'm sure he's a great guy, but it, you, it there's that European I don't know magistry to the sport, isn't there? Oh, absolutely, and and we do like we obviously as uh, as our home team, like we love the Whistler announcers, sure. and we we know them all on and off the track because. Like we spend so much time out there. Like, you know, all the track you're walking the track and you're walking up, you're like, Hey Snowy, how's it going? Hey Damien. Like, yep. Great ice guys. Or like, so, I mean, yes and no, because we're biased because we love those people. But when you go to St. Moritz, which is like the Mecca of bobsled and skeleton. Right. So their, their announcer just retired last year, but he could speak like, I swear. So he would say that Dibanist Fry, the track is clear, but then he would repeat it in, the language of the person, like Russian, Polish, English, like sure. French, unreal. And so like you look there and on race day and you're like, you, there's just something about the aura of, of Europe, of sliding in Europe. And it, it is because people know what it is. Um, you know, you're going through customs in Germany and the guy's like, what's because we travel with some of our gear and like gun cases. They're like, what's in the gun case? You're like, Oh, skeleton runners. And they're like, Oh sweet, where are you going? Yeah. And you you tell them they're like, "Oh, you're going to Koenigsegg. Have a good race." What what's give us a week what, so how does your sport in 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 an, an event? Is it a weekend event? What what's the setup for when you're competing? What day before, day after sort of thing? It would be nice if most of the races fall on weekends, like because then people from the region tend to come out. Um sometimes they're on a Monday, but it kind of looks like so we would arrive from either like home driving or flying from home to there or from the last race stop uh, the day before Mm -hmm. our official training starts. And that day, generally we try to like either a day or two, I guess, like you would get there at night and then have a full day off where it's like equipment set up, maybe walk the track if we can get to the track. Uh, there's a team captain's meeting, which our coach goes to that like kind of goes over the info for the whole week. They bring that back. We have a team meeting and then you wake up the next day and you're like, it's day one of official training. Um, we get two runs on each day of official training. We get three days. So that's only six runs. And if you haven't been to that track in a while, you have six runs to figure it out before race day. (laughs) And each day, like you're going to the track, say, especially if you're walking earlier, which is like we, we walk down with our, with our little ice trekkers and analyze all the corners, rehearse our steers. So you might be at the track two hours before your sliding session. Then you kind of warm up, get your gear ready, slide your first run, come back up, depending on how many people are in the race, you're going to have maybe 30 minutes or you could be up in like 10 minutes. You do your second run, a um, little bit of video review, whether it be at the track just quickly and then we go into some, you know, go home, eat a uh, couple days, two of the days that where we have official training, I like to go to the gym and just do a quick workout. So say that's another 45 minutes. Then you might have a full, like more extensive video review, whether it be with your team or in groups. And then you wake up the next day, do it again for day two, and then do it again for day three. And then on day three, 
we obviously then have like a meeting where they do the race draw. Uh, our coach draws numbers. We, we as athletes, um, especially in bigger nations, don't need to go because our coach goes for us. Then we go home, we prep all our equipment and just get ready like to race the next day. And then um, on some of the lower level circuits, you race double races then. So I might race like Saturday, Sunday then. Mm-hmm. And then you turn around on Monday and go to the next race stop or you go home. Um, but it's kind of like that. And then, yeah, the double race day is always interesting because you're given it all for two runs on race day and you have to go home and prep your equipment all over again. Maybe ice your wounds. If you've had a bad day, you know, go over the, go over what happened and what you're going to change for the next race day. How involved, how much do you time do you spend yourself on your sled? It depends on how well things are going. If, if it's a track I know well, and, and like in Whistler, um, I can get there and look at the weather and kind of have an idea of what like runners, which are like the tubes on the bottom of the sled. And so half of it has like a little bit of a, a blade and like a cut. Um, and it's different, different widths of the spine that digs in and different rounds. So could dig in lots or, or not at all. Well, very, very little. And sure. that's when you're going for less control. Yep. And uh, so I can, I can kind of gauge now, especially been around a little bit longer and I have some mentors and, and coaches that I can bounce ideas off of, of what equipment to pick. Um, but at the same time, if things aren't going well, or like you start to get in your own head, you like want to play with your, <laughs> with your equipment more. And especially, um, a couple of years ago, I bought like a pretty high end sled. It's like a Ferrari of, of sleds. I flew to London, got it fitted by the guy in the UK. He shipped it over to Canada. Um, and it's like one of two major sled builders in the world. And, and then it was like, oh man, there are lots I can fiddle with. But at the same time, I spent a whole year not changing anything, but the barely, I barely even changed the runners. I was like, I just need to learn this sled. Um, and that was also the year I was cut. So it was a good year <laughs> to do that. And then this year I knew how the sled reacted under all these different conditions. And then I'm like, okay, now here's what I can do and talk it over with my coach as well. So, um, yeah, it's dependent, but you can, you see people get so in their head and you can get lost fiddling with things for hours if you, if you're not careful. I, I don't know why that surprises me, but it, it surprises me a little bit. So you're responsible for the, the purchase of your own sled. Yes. Uh, yeah, I spent, it would have equated, and I say I, I had a very generous donation from Bank of Mom and Dad. Uh, and it was around the same time where, where we, I was thinking like, man, if I'm going to do this, like, yeah. let's do this. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was on an okay sled, but it was kind of aging out um, in terms of like newer technology, but it was the same builder. And I bought it secondhand, but yeah, I bought all my, and all the runner tubes. Like we have, I have my own personal set. We do have access to some through our national federation, but that's like mm-hmm. pecking order. So world cup team, the top level guys and girls get access first and then it kind of, you know, goes down the list. So yeah. maybe what I want has already been picked. So I like to have a few sets of my own to play with that, that can buy me by on most of the like staple tracks. But yeah. Um, all my spikes, like my helmet I bought two years ago cost me $1,000 Canadian, but you're like, if I'm going to spend $1,000 on a piece of equipment, it's going to be my helmet. Yeah, well, no, that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I agree. What's the lifespan on this stuff? Well, your helmet until it cracks, um, which... No, so it's not, it's not certified? Like, I mean, I think hockey helmets are like four years or something like that. It's literally this guy in Germany that like, 
Uvex subcontracts out to that he makes them in his basement and he doesn't even make them anymore, I don't think. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're certified by, like, like at a race, like, yeah. um, someone can be like, that person's helmet isn't legal or complain or something like that, or the jury might see it while you're, like, training and they'll, like, pull you and be like, oh, your helmet, like, some of the older helmets have, like, this weird, like, padding thing on the back of the head and it, like, can apparently be used as a spoiler, maybe. Um, but it's just an older model. And I mean, so it it's tough because yeah, there's not there's one supplier. Um, and again, it was like in high demand a couple of years ago. This guy was maybe gonna stop making them. So like a bunch of us, like I had a different helmet at the time, but I was like, I, I need to buy another one. Like, what if this one cracks? Right. Um, so yeah, it, the lifespan is like we try and take good care of it. And I mean, yep. we're not doing a ton of runs over season because we can't slide for the other like spring and summer of the year. So then, you know, you only use it for the winter season and then you might have, especially the top level athletes have like their race helmet and then they have like their training helmet. So then you kind of like bide up the time as well. And same with our spikes. Do you, is that carry on or you check that luggage? <laughs> I carry on everything that I can. Um, our spikes, I, I've heard some stories that people have gotten them on, but I check those. Um, but I carry on my helmet because also if they try and make me carry on my bag, I'm like, Oh, it has my laptop and a helmet in it. I'm like, it's like this North face backpack. I'm like, I'm not checking this. Um, it needs to go in the overhead. Uh, and then like my race suit, um, and kind of like gloves and stuff, like all that kind of stuff. I try and bring in my carry on bag that I travel with. Right. Just ease of mind, you know, of, Okay, if I need to replace one thing, it's spikes. And spikes are easier to come by in the sense that you might know someone has an extra pair when you're at a track in Europe. Um, the sign community has been really great about that. There have been, like, races where World Cup athletes have had their, like, sleds lost and their, all their gear lost. And everyone else comes together and, like, is oh. able to mishmash something so they can at least get their training runs in. When, when are you the coldest competing? Oh, my gosh. Lake Placid in New York. Um, and if anyone's not familiar, it's where the 1980 miracle on ice is, uh, when it gets cold there, it gets cold and it's like bone chilling. And most tracks, like when it's minus 25, they're like, start to be on the cusp of canceling, especially if it's training, they don't want the track, like the people that work at the track standing outside in that as well. So they start to think about maybe canceling in Lake Placid, they just run and like, it is insane. There's just nothing like I love sliding, but when you get to the bottom, it's like, you feel like you survived. Your fingers are just starting to get numb. Um, and you're like, Oh my gosh, that was, you're like, I just made it through and you get back up. We put like gloves on our toes. <laughs> it, it's, it's probably the least fun. And especially the more I'm around, I say I become a bit more of like a fair weather slider because I'm like, I'm done my time of like cold Calgary training sessions when we used to have the track here. Um, and again, it'd be minus 25. We'd have like buffs under our helmets and stuff like that. You're like, I've done my time there. I'm, I, I don't need any more cold. <laughs> uh, in conversation here with uh, Grace Defoe, by the way, not sure what sports are provided in Calgary sport, Calgary sport directory will help you find the sport, the sport organization that is right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. I am somewhat reverse engineering your career here. Um, at some point though, did you ever have to make a determination head first or feet first? No. So I actually figure skated growing up. So yep. that took me from like as 
early as I could skate growing up on Lake Sundance. I had skates on when I was two years old. Uh, and then I was like, I want to figure skate. And my brother played hockey. So that seemed, you know, my parents like, great, we're already at the rink. We'll chuck you on the other side of the rink and <laughs> we'll have dual practices. And, and I mean, it worked. Yeah. Uh, and I fell in love with figure skating, uh, was pretty mediocre at it, but kept at it cause it's fun. And, and I had a lot of great friends and, and I was like, let's see how far I can take this. And, you know, it took me to, uh, just around my first year of university that I was like, okay, like, and I knew that I wasn't going to go anywhere with it when I was like 13. Like you can see the girls going to the Olympics or like here and you're like, okay, well I can barely land my doubles. I'm here. Um, but then yeah, right around my first year of university, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Like to end it on my own terms. So by then I was too old for luge. Um, so I actually emailed the Alberta Bobsled Association like that year before, never got a reply back. Um, and for the record, I'm like five, seven. And at that point, like 130 pounds. <laughs> so no wonder I didn't get a reply back. Uh, but then I just ended up, uh, someone my dad knew his son did skeleton and yeah. it was like a work associate of my dad. And, and so I, you know, got all the info on how to try it. And, and luge was never really, yeah, like I said, they start pretty young. So, uh, that had already passed. It was kind of more bobsled or skeleton and skeleton was the only one that called. Um, and really the only sport it was like speed skating or skeleton were really only like the late entry sports that were the option. And I hate, hate, hate aerobic training. So I was like, speed skating is probably not going to be my thing. <laughs> so what, I don't, I'm missing a step here. So how does one go from being a competitive figure skater into a sliding sport? Like, what what was the bridge there? Uh, so the bridge was actually win, was wind sport. Um, so at that time, my club had kind of split. We were half at uh, Rose Con, Jimmy Conlon Arena, yeah. which is a 88 legacy facility. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up every day looking at the Olympic rings on, on skating on the rink. And we had kind of split our programs half the younger kids were there and my coach moved up to these brand new arenas that had just opened up at Windsport. Um, none of the stuff was there yet, except the ice house. I remember touring it and you know, the CSI gym wasn't there yet. And they're like, you can literally only go down this little hallway and there's one dressing room and one rink open. And we started skating up there. And around that time, obviously I knew that I wasn't going to go farther with skating. Like, farther in terms of like as a competitive athlete I was mm -hmm. just kind of there staying active having fun training with my friends and you kind of start to look around wind sport and that was right around Vancouver 2010 mm -hmm. that I was kind of watching obviously I like I'm a huge Olympics fan I have been since like since as long as I can remember I remember watching the Salt Lake uh women's hockey team they rolled the tv into my class and we mm -hmm. watched the final and and so, like, I've always loved the Olympics. And so I was watching Vancouver 2010 and, and training, obviously, up at Windsport at that time. And I kind of, like, I briefly remember seeing John Montgomery with the beer walking through yep. through the plaza and, and watched the events prior and obviously watched the bobsled as well. And I think it's, like, kind of all the things came together right at that time where it was, like, well, like, oh, that might be something I'm interested in. Like, why not? Um, and I guess I never really thought it would be possible, but then I'm like, oh, well I'm training in the rink and like, there's all these facilities in Calgary. That would be awesome. I can just go try it up at the track. Um, and then, so I was actually supposed to move away for university, um, go out onto the East coast. And I 
one month before that, decided to stay in Calgary and apply to Mount Royal. And at that point, I also started like started discovering, okay, I can actually do skeleton. Um, this is like I can do it while I'm while I'm working. I was working up at Windsport and and going to school, and I was like, oh, okay, like this is actually something I can I can practice. So it, it's a lot of moving parts that kind of all sure. came together right at the right time and. And I think if one of them would have been misaligned, like I wouldn't be where I am today. Do you ride roller coasters? Were you riding roller coasters? Were you a, a thrill-seeking person, teenager at that time? I wasn't entirely. So like as a kid, don't get me wrong, we went to like Knott's Berry Farm, Disneyland. Yeah. I rode every roller coaster. Okay. Yeah. Um, but there came a point, I think, and it's like every, when kids start to get afraid. Um, for sure. And I remember like popping jumps and figure skating, like not fully rotating because I started to get afraid of falling mm-hmm. and an end of failure. Like you're like, man, I don't want to fail. Um, but then you pop the jump and you're like, that's just as bad as falling. Um, so, I mean, I'm not a super adrenaline junkie for sure. I'm more of like a calculated risk. So I look at everything and I'm like, okay, like, I'm like, am I going to get super injured? No. Is it like a controlled environment? Yes. So I go through like this stuff. So people laugh at me because I'm not the one that's like going to go, you know, try a backflip, you know, in the park across the street. But when things are, when I, when things are right and things are safe and I feel okay with like taking risks, say with like trying a new sport or obviously because trying skeleton, you're like, there's no other way to do it than just start. (laughs) What was the first trip down like? Um, so the first trip down, I actually did from like corner 11 and there's 14 corners in Calgary and John Montgomery was actually there. Um, and it was like, just, and so I remember him looking at me and being like, you have a good body type for skeleton. And I was kind of like, it was like this public triad event. I kind of like had this little like brush on my shoulder. Like, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it feels like a washing machine. The first few times you go down, you are not sure what's happening. You're yeah. on these like steel sleds that like are, they've used probably since 88 um, <laughs> and like, there's no way you can steer them. They have such a stiff frame. Like you're just along for the ride. Um, before I went off the top. So like you take like a little bit of a tiered approach where mm-hmm. you do some runs from lower down. They teach you about form, etc. They want to make sure you can follow the safety protocols of the track. And then on the last day of our sliding school, they move you up to the top here in Calgary. And uh, like, I remember thinking like, I'm going to die. Like, let it be known to my mom and dad, these are my last wishes kind of thing. And then I actually kicked the sled. And my first run uh, that I got to push, I kicked the sled, like, right on the inside of my ankle. And I spent the whole run down being like, oh, my gosh, it feels like I've broken my ankle because it was like the steel <laughs> sled. Think about your ankle ramming into it right as you load on the sled. Um, I had this massive bruise. But it kind of, and for someone so technical, like, I kind of, like, on the other end, it was like, this is my alternate ego of embracing the chaos a little bit. Um, so I think I fell in love eventually with that aspect. <laughs> at, at some point, I, I think, you tell me, Grace, at some point, things begin to slow down. At some point, you begin to understand that you are in control. And do. How long did that take for you? It took probably the first season. Um which is just you're throwing yourself down night after night and you're like get bruised. You're like talking to the coach. You're like, yeah, I went into this corner. I had no idea where I was. It's when you start to understand where you are in the corner, like yeah. what, what way the corner turns, number one, like 
you're like, okay, the one coming up goes left. Um, so you kind of know what to expect. And then also once I got off these steel sleds, I had a rented like fiberglass sled from the association and it's a little bit nicer. And especially as a smaller girl, like, um, compared to like, say a 200 pound guy, like I could actually like flex the sled a little bit. So then I was like, well, was I steering right before, but I just couldn't actually put the pressure needed into the sled. So that's when it thing, like things started to click a little bit more. And then, yeah, with repetition, um, now I say like, your brain just works much quicker now when you're like, you can process and especially as you've been on a track more like in Whistler, for example, I have maybe 200, 250 runs out there. Like I can know what all the options are of like when you're going into the corner. Okay. I'm on this side. I know what to do. If I'm in the middle, I know what to do. If I'm on the complete other side, I know what to do. So yeah, I, it took a couple years, but then once I started to, uh, to get more into it and understand where things are going, then it starts to click a little bit more. Tell me about Duff Gibson and and what role Duff has in this magical journey. Yeah, just another another uh, Olympic champion that is like somehow I've ended up working for. <laughs> um, so it's actually really funny. So before, so my first race in Whistler would have been. So I met Duff briefly. He was exiting the program as the head coach in 2014. And that was the first year that I was like entering the national program and about to compete internationally. So we actually had a bit of an email crossover because he had set out the criteria for qualifying for the team. And I'm like, cool. I've never been involved with this before. Like I had so many questions and, and then he exited the program and then he came back and did a little bit of a guest coaching stint with, Canada and with another development coach in January of 2015 and it was a so Whistler's a tough track and it was my first race there and my it was on Canadian soil it's like a lot of not pressure pressure internally like no external pressure but uh I was having a really really rough week like not driving with the track that well and he was there and I kind of I remember meeting him and then I had just left an awesome job in Cochrane in 2016. Um, I was coordinating a multi-sport program out there and we parted ways and, you know, Duff noticed I was connected with him on LinkedIn or something. And he had noticed that I'd been looking for a job and he's like, why don't we have coffee? Um, I run this awesome program called dark horse and, and we need coaches. And I had just also graduated from Mount Royal the year before um, with a degree in health and physical education with a major in physical literacy And so obviously my background is health and phys ed and I specifically like coaching younger kids Mm -hmm. um, and not in specific sports, more like multi-sport, try these fun activities uh, off the ice. And, and especially we used to work with a lot of hockey players. So then I ended up working for him and it's just been awesome to have someone who's gone through another person who's gone through, like, obviously he, achieved greatness by winning a gold medal, but then he went on to coach as well and, and yeah. coach some, some of our top Canadians, um, in the skeleton program. So, but then like hearing what he thinks about youth sport and, and how he teaches like these kids about perseverance and leadership and, and all this awesome stuff. Um, I'm just like, I'm so proud to be a part of the coaching team with dark horse. And he's also been very, very generous to give me the needed time off, um, to travel and to chase my dreams on the other end. And then I always have this like fun coaching job to come back to whenever I'm in town. So, um, 
yeah, I, I'm very lucky to be a part of that. And also like, I just love paying it forward for the next generation as well. And that's part of coaching. So it's a, it's fun. It's not work for me to go and coach with, with them. There's so many things to like about Duff, but, and I wonder about how much it, it connects to you, him being a late bloomer, wins a gold medal at the age of 36. Not to suggest you're going to have to wait, you know, another 15, 16 years, but what I like about and what I love about your story, and we cannot tell these stories enough, is you are not an early specialization skeleton child. You weren't stuck on a, a sled at six years old and did it 12 months a year. You had another sport. We can find, we can always go. We can always find things elsewhere in life. And I think Duff is an example of that. And that's what I love about your story. Like this is, this yeah. is the second chapter, really, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what I took it as in Skeleton. You know, a lot of people have asked me, like, what keeps you going? And I'm like, well, I already, like, went through, like, I was an early specialized figure skater. So, I mean, I I did have some of the more negative effects of, like, mental burnout when I was leaving, you know, figure skating just from going so long, like, 11 months a year. But on the other end, I had balanced it out with a few other school sports and an awesome, like, strength and conditioning kind of fitness routine that made sure I wasn't injured for like my entire skating career. Um, but then, yeah, like I, I was ready to just completely walk away from sport. And then this awesome opportunity came up to try skeleton. And I always say that it like, it was, it was, it wasn't, I want to say it's fate, but like, it just was meant to be. Ooh, like, and... I think it's fate. Oh, <laughs> okay. I think it's fate. Cause sometimes it feels like I'm forcing it because of how long it's taken me to like achieve anything. And in the sport, but, uh, but yeah, it came along and, and that's how I know I'll be okay when skeleton's over too, is because I've already retired from one sport and learned how to deal with it. But now I have more of an understanding of like training and like having the fun, even though it's high performance training, I still have fun at training every day. So I have like that aspect that I'll be able to pull to be like active. And then my like third, my third sporting career, which will be active for life. Who's crazier, fi- figure skating moms or skeleton moms? <laughs> well, so it's very different because, like, obviously in sliding, a lot of us are adults, so there isn't okay, a ton of yeah. there isn't a ton of adults like around. I guess, um, man, there were some crazy figure skating moms growing <laughs> up. Perhaps my mom included, but not in a bad way. She just always wanted to make sure that I wasn't like getting the short end of the stick. Fair enough. So then she ended up being the president on our board of our skating club because she's like, well then, then I can like help, you know, everything be fair and, and, and move along. And, um, so yeah, I mean, perhaps I would say like, I love my mom dearly, but she's also traveled with me for skeleton. And I'm like, sometimes she does just go into this mom mode, um, that, but it's not like crazy sport parents like you see on like on no no, know, no no on no no Twitter no no, no, no. Uh, but yeah I there are a lot of crazy sport parents but in skeleton we're pretty lucky it's mostly adults so we don't really have to deal with it. Where did uh, it's funny for someone who describes themselves as an extroverted introvert, um, you are you're such a cool follow on social media and have been for a while, and you mentioned the the kind of the um, the debate the whatever you want to call it, the plebiscite on, on 2026. And that's where you really got on my radar because you were really active in that conversation and wanted your voice heard. Grace, where did that kind of advocacy come from? Yeah. And that's tough for me because 
like I said, I am an extra extroverted introvert. <laughs> um, and I remember being at the sport, uh, the booster club sports gala and you were emceeing and I was yeah. getting, I was getting one of the grants, yeah. um, lucky enough from them. And you gave me a gift certificate to Boston pizza for being so for tweeting about the gala or something like yeah. that. Um, which I also thought I was like, Oh my gosh, Rob Kerr knows who I am. Um, <laughs> like full disclosure, I grew up listening in my dad's car, driving home from skating practice. He only played sports radio. So it'd be like post flames game. And I listened to your voice all like whenever he would drive me home. So, um, the fact that you say I'm a cool social follow, well, you like, are. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, but so I thought about this, like why advocacy? And it's because it comes from that sense of like being kind of like an underdog and being mediocre growing up in figure skating is I was like, I might never be known for my athletic achievements, nor do I want to be like, I don't want them to be mm -hmm. like, yeah, Grace did this in her sport, but didn't do anything else. It's been, um, it's just been about like creating a legacy. And a lot of that actually came from some awesome, like mentors of mine, which, um, when I started training like for skeleton, like actually going all in for training, I walked into a gym and it's like Maria Samson, Mozak Samson, Trish Jarowski. Say Michaela. no more. All right. The answers so, are right there. <laughs> and I saw them and they're these, like they were at that, you know, top level of their yeah. careers yeah. at that point. And I saw everything they were doing in the community. I was like, number one, I want to go hang out with you guys because you guys are supposed to these awesome events. Um, but number two, like I, I totally understood all the good causes that they were they were representing and I had actually just joined fast and female around that time as an ambassador um, because of all the awesome females in sport that I looked up to were also ambassadors. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, maybe I'll apply. I hope I get accepted. And then realize it's actually not like a, you're accepted or not. They just accept everybody because it's amazing. They're like every female in sport has a story to tell, <laughs> but um, yeah. So that like advocacy and community has become really important to me because I want to, leave this legacy of like, you know, kids, kids wanting to grow up and, and be in sport, whether it be competitively or not. And like, know that physical activity is really good for them. But I also then want, if they're choosing high performance sport for it to be a clearer path than maybe I've had, because I've had to fight tooth and nail, um, to like, you know, make enough money so I can pay for my own skeleton season and also pay for like life. Um, <laughs> That it's been, I just want to make sure that like every, so I posted a really great quote and it pertains to women in sport, but I think it applies to everyone in sport. But it's that growing up, I was told that I could do anything that I wanted, but I want kids to grow up knowing that they can do everything that they want. Yeah, that, that's a great quote, by the way. I always feel awkward talking about this subject because I'm not, you know, obviously I'm the wrong gender to have a voice in this, in this fight, but I just think the world of Calgary, I think the world of Canada for the fact that we have so many leaders, female leaders, female role models, and, and it's only getting better. And I look at you as the next generation of that, that you're going to build on the legacy of Katrina LeMay Doan, and you're going to build on the legacy of Cassie Campbell-Pascal and, and on and on and on. I, I just, but again, wrong gender to have that voice, but I do believe that that's where we're at. It's not, you're allowed to have a voice. And the thing I've learned about, like, about, like, especially advocating for female in sport is that, um, like, we also need the male counterparts to, to stick up and be like, mm -hmm. this is, you know, this is important because you do see the naysayers that TSN posts the thing about the WNBA draft. And, you know, you look at the thousand negative comments and you're like, we've made no progress. 
but then, like you said, you look within the Calgary community and I feel so inspired, like looking at, at all the awesome female athletes that have also gone on to like have tremendous legacies post-sport. Yeah. It's not about who they were in sport. It's about what they've gone on to do in the, like since then. Um, and yeah, that's definitely, I appreciate saying I'm the next generation because that's for sure what, what legacy I want to leave is I want to build what I can now, but then build upon it post-sport as well. So my, my last one for you then is, do you have a, any regrets to this point? Is there, is there a, I mean, and I'm not talking about what's ahead. I'm just talking about anything behind. It's tough because like I said, there's so much, like there's so much fate that I explain on how I fell into skeleton. And it's yeah. like, if I regret one thing in the past 18 years before then, like would something have been different? Um, but there is one. And I will say I ran, um, high school track in grade 10 mm. and I got recruited, um, just like for a school team because they were like my, my PE teacher at the time was watching me, um, sprint up and down. We we're playing floor hockey and in, in PE. <laughs> and he's like, man, like you're giving her back and forth. And I had really good cardio at the time, obviously from skating, but then the explosiveness from like jumping. Yeah. And he's like, come out to the track team. I was like, okay, cool. I never run track at all. And, uh, I actually had a good, like it, I was in grade 10. I ran the 60, I ran the hundred. Um, I remember this indoor dinos meet, one of the senior girls on the senior relay t- team got injured. My first track meet ever. And I ran in the senior hundred meter relay. <laughs> They're like, okay, this is how like we pass the baton. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm in for. But I mean, yeah. So, and then at the end of the season, I remember going to provincials and my track coach could not care that I was there. He he is also, he's also coaching, um, his like private club athletes that he had on the side yeah. and he only paid attention to them at provincials and he didn't pay any attention to me. And, uh, you know, and, and I just, there wasn't, I wasn't driving with, with the program and, and with, like, I didn't have very much, I had fun with my friends, like on the bus rides to and from, mm. but it wasn't a good, like coaching situation in terms of like, I felt supported and like, I was going to get better. And so I'm like, great, I'll just keep skating. Like, I did you a favor by coming out. Um, so I regret not going back because now, especially in skeleton, you look at how important, like, our 30 to 60-meter sprint is in our national testing criteria. And I'm like, oh, would I have been that much better if I'd run two extra years of track? But then on the other side, I balance it out, and I'm like, but then maybe I would have been overtrained or or so – if I have any ounce of regret, it would be there because I let a bad coach like basically take me out of two years of running track with my friends. Um, but that's, that's life. And that's just a part of a part of my story. And I accept that. And now I have a blast sprinting with less and, and our group. So, well, I was going to say a great lesson though, for coaches too, right? You know, you think, you know what you think, you know, but sometimes you don't. And, and sometimes it's right under your nose, right? You know? Yeah. And, and it's tough, like, and especially as a coach on the other end now, is like, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can, right. that I'm not being that negative experience for one kid, that they, like, stop going into sport whatsoever. Um, that's always been my huge, like, drive when I coach. It's like, okay, you, you might think you're doing an okay job or a great job, but you have to be on every night when you're coaching because you don't want that one experience to be the reason that someone quits sport. All right. You know what the last question is? Give me your hidden Calgary gem. Oh, yes. I've thought, I've thought a lot about this. Um, 
So yeah, like I born and raised in Calgary. There, there are a few that have already been named, so I won't name the same ones. Um, but there is this restaurant on Edmonton Trail, uh, and I live in this community, but it's called Tavernetta, and it's a little Italian place in this old house, and they have a killer backyard patio. And when hopefully this open, when when yep. this pandemic is over, you will find me having a glass of wine, eating some great Italian food in the courtyard with my family in the sun. Um, that's for sure my my hidden gem. Um, secondly, I would have to pick like a place and it's the Ramsey Hill where you watch the stampede fireworks. Mm -hmm. That is like, when I go up there, I get chills when you look at like the whole stampede skyline and, and, uh, yeah. So those are my two, a place and then a restaurant. Those are awesome. You are awesome. Grace, thank you so much. I so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation again for an extroverted introvert. You did very well. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on. It's always fun to share a little tidbit of like behind the scenes of my story. So yeah, thank you. That is Grace Defoe. Uh, Love the conversation. Love the honesty where she's coming from. Um, You know, there's some things there. I don't know about you, but I learned about the sport, the buying of the sleds, going down with your feet or your head first, uh, the age and all those sort of things. By the way, Skeleton will be another um, uh, part of a podcast coming up with a guy that was mentioned in the, that's all I'm going to say. He was mentioned in this here podcast and, and he won a medal, actually a pretty prestigious medal. That's all I'm going to say, by the way, just a reminder, starting next week, uh, down to Monday, Wednesday, and Friday drops. So just three podcasts a week. Uh, we don't want to, again, we were, you know, really churning them out there, but as things start to open up a little bit and people start going back to work, still want to continue telling the story. Still got lots of great people to talk about. Just wanted to give you the heads up. If you haven't, Head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe. Go to sportcalgary.ca. If you want to find some that we you may have missed or you want to see what we've done, you can get them at the podcast section there. Thanks for joining us. This has been an original six-beat conversation podcast at sportcalgary.ca.